Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of this series of Gigawaters. A podcast brought to you by SG Voice and Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with Ersted. These discussions are leading the global energy conversation, examining offshore wind and the role that it's going to play in helping Scotland to its goal of net zero by 2045. The goal for Scotland is not only to help the energy transition, but to unlock billions in investment in Scotland, not just in terms of individual projects, but also in terms of innovation, growth and sustainable development. The project is a lens for the future, and it highlights the challenges that we know we face, from planning and grid management to supply chain and skills. We need to think and plan for the many years it's going to take to get everything we need into place. I'm Felicia Jackson, the editor of Energy Voice's sister publication, Sustainable Growth Voice. And joining me today is my co-host, Duncan Clark, head of UK and Ireland at Ersted. And our special guest for this episode is Jane Cooper, Director of Offshore Wind at Renewable UK. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating discussion. One of the things I really wanted to talk about this morning is lessons learned from the process of actually getting Scotwind together. You know, we've got this plan for the amount of renewables that we actually need to deploy. How are we going to make that happen? What do we need to take from what's happened in the last decade to actually make things come to fruition? Duncan, can I turn to you and ask you? Yeah, morning, Felicia. I think in the last decade, we saw offshore wind step to a new scale. That's a new scale on each individual turbine, a new scale of each project and the array size, and also a new scale on the transmission assets that connect them into the grid. So technically, we took leaps and bounds towards really making a difference. And and we did so commercially as well. So the cost of energy from an offshore wind farm came crashing down. So all of those lessons that got us to, to those gains, we've got to build on for the next decade. We've got to remember what drove that cost of energy down, delivered the efficiencies, and yeah, to do that at scale. And I think that's always one of those challenges is how do we do that at scale and with speed? Jane, what are your thoughts on this? I entirely agree with what Duncan's saying. I think we've made huge progress in the last 10 years, huge. We're going to look back on this decade of, I think, when people went from horse and carts to cars, and we need to start banking some of those changes that we've made and we have accelerated. We've brought the costs down. There's been huge, huge number of technological advances. The size of the turbine blades is one. It's fascinating to people, but that's a huge cost for the suppliers, for the manufacturers, um, in terms of materials advancement, in terms of the gigawatts they can produce. And we need to make sure that we've really banked those technological changes and really understood them and make sure we're able to build those into our future wind farms. Uh, we're, we're accelerating very quickly, P- possibly sometimes maybe we're going quicker than we would have ordinarily gone. But when there's a crisis, you need to go quick. And that's what we've done. That's a really interesting point. Uh, one of the things I think that did come up when we were talking more generally was this idea that of the momentum we've got in the offshore wind industry. And how do we accelerate that momentum? Because I know it sounds crazy, given you've just talked about how much acceleration we've seen. Do you think we can continue that? I think it's a challenge because... The breakthroughs that we talked about now make it attractive around the world. So all of a sudden, what was a select number of markets has gone global. And so there is now 
acute demand around the world. As Jane said, we've got to build up the delivery capability. That means a whole set of thousands of companies in the supply chain have all got to scale up and they've got to scale up for the new larger models of turbine and the new technology solutions. So there's a lot of investment in supply chain that needs to be brought forward. That takes a little while and suppliers that are going to make that investment need to see both the order flow, the customer demand that, they, that they're serving, but also they need to see a bit of profitability. Obviously, it's clear we have to have the delivery frameworks in place, but there is always a time lag between what you've got in process, in planning, and when that's actually being deployed and, that, and when you need those particular materials at particular times. Do you think there's lessons to be learned from the current process in how we can improve that? I think what we're seeing is the planning challenges for building offshore wind, we still have to go through them. They're, they're large, they're iconic, and they're beautiful, and in my view, and they're delivering clean energy, but they are still large infrastructure generation, energy generation projects, and they need to go through a lengthy planning process. And we need to speed that up. We're working with government. Governments come out with policy statements, national policy statements, in order to kind of help deliver that and deliver it more quickly. We need the grid there to be able to connect to the wind farms, to be able to provide the energy to the homes and factories. So there is a lag, but there's actually a lot. I think what I see is I see a lot of investments standing ready to invest, the developers ready to develop, and the supply chain, as Duncan says, is is looking for the pipeline, the order books, but actually some of this stuff is about the policy and the regulatory environment that will enable that to happen. So can I ask what your thoughts are about how the actual Scotwin process was organised? You know, because I think one of the big questions around the large scale deployment of infrastructure that's that's supposed to serve society is how do you bring together these different elements? And what can you tell us about the way the Scotwind bidding process was put together that might show us how to do things better in the future? It was a leasing round for seabed and actually quite a concern considered approach was taken to how to run that competitive process. What would be the criteria that different bidders, you know, um, competed against? And it was a mixture of factors. There was an element of price, the fees paid, but there were also elements of capability, uh, capability to develop and bring forward the projects, elements of supply chain and wider development and so i think it's a good example actually of how to bring multi-factor uh in, into the competition uh, and you know of course that reflects the fact that what society and what the crown estate scotland in this case wanted from the round wasn't just the gigawatts if you like not just the electricity production capability but also some of the other things like supply chain development ports development and so on. So I think it's quite a good example of how to do that. If if I had to just criticize it for a second, I think, you know, in one way, it's very good that it was such a large round, you know, putting a lot of seabed out there um, so that you can plan in the very long term for the trajectory of capacity build that we need. That's a good thing. The seabed's out there. It means people can start developing. But it was a surprise supersizing of the round and at the moment we're dealing with some of the consequences of that how do we factor in so much capacity in terms of our grid planning how do we factor in so many different projects coming forward in terms of coping with that in terms of the the organizations that are part of our planning process 
So there's a lot to, to work on there still. That's a fascinating analysis of the situation because as someone who doesn't work within the offshore wind industry, I hadn't really thought about the implications of supersizing the offer, as you say, because I think one of the things that's come across is that with the Scott Wind Project, there was a lot of incentivization for bidders around the idea that there was this focus on supply chain development, on upskilling, on on that wider picture. So a big strategic vision. And I suppose it's quite an interesting idea is can it be too big? It can be too much of a surprise because I think, you know, we, we need, for example, the authorities which are part of assessing and deciding on planning consent, they, they need the capacity, the skills, the resources to do that. And the more projects, the more work there is to do. So you've got to be got to be ready to do it. And the same goes for the grid. You know, we are blessed with a lot of raw resource, wind and space around Scottish coasts, you know, but actually most of the demand is elsewhere. So we need transmission solutions to take the production to where the product is needed. And and that doesn't happen overnight. So we need a lot of planning. And the foresight is good for planning. So if I had one criticism, it would be to give more foresight. One of the things that has become clear when you talk about the grid, you talk about the need for it, is all these different parties that are involved in getting things off the ground. What do you think the most important thing is for the success of these strategic visions? One of the things that's very important is actually sufficient advanced foresight of it. We have to plan and get ready. And part of this is the nature of very long life infrastructure. It takes a lot of time to get the concept, the design, and then quite a long time to do the execution. And then it's a very long life asset. So, you know, that's it works over timelines that perhaps we don't often meet in our in our day to day. An offshore wind project can be, let's say, 10 years. That's quite normal, actually, 10 years from a bit of seabed being allocated to that project being ready to invest in. And then it might be another four or five years to construct, including the grid connection. And then it might operate for 30 or 40 or more years after that. So. These timelines demand of us a lot of planning and foresight and, you know, that discipline of looking forward and preparing for it. If that's recruitment and training and resources in all the different organizations that are involved, or if it is the strategic concept and, the, and defining the destination that we're aiming at, all of those things need doing and they need doing typically quite a few years in advance. I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because if you think about the way the general public think about climate technology, about green tech, there is this sense that it's software, that it's technology that's implemented quickly. And actually, when you're talking about power generation, you're talking about these, these massive, massive projects. And as you say, I think we really have to communicate better on the sense that just because we've agreed to do something doesn't mean it's going to be available tomorrow and and to manage expectations around that. And I think one of the things that has been brought up is is the fact that, in a sense, most people agree on what the destination needs to be, which is low carbon energy. There's a lot of disagreement on how to get there, a lot of disagreement about how to phase things in, phase things out. And sometimes it's quite difficult if you if you are within the renewable sector and you understand the benefits, it, it's difficult to see why all the different parties can't all just agree a way forward. 
But it's this thing of all these different actors and all these different parties having different jobs to do. You know, how do we bring them together? And Jane, I mean, can you speak to that? Because I know you've got a lot of experience in dealing with a lot of different parties trying to achieve things in different ways and different timetables. Yeah. So as Duncan was speaking, the two words I wrote down um, were collaboration and strategic, because I think the strategic one we've spoken about, the need for foresight, the need for planning, the need for organizing ourselves. But the collaboration one, our, our industry has always spoken about collaboration and collaborating to succeed. Um, I, I don't know if it's because it's got sort of Northern European roots. <laughs> we're, we're a really, really more collaborative than any industry that I've ever worked in. I think it's a real benefit. It's an asset. It's a benefit. It's an asset of where we are. Um, and big picture, we're all trying to get to the same thing. But actually, it very quickly, how do you find that way through it with all the different parties and once you go into the seabed, so the seabed leasing, it's not just about Crown Estate Scotland, who is responsible for the seabed itself. It's actually about the marine management organisation. It's about the um, statutory nature bodies, um, Natural England. It's about DEFRA. It's about the local, the local organisations. It's about the communities. It's about the fishermen. It's about, it's about everyone. So everyone's got a point of view. Big picture, everyone knows where we need to get to, but how do you kind of do those how do you manage all those expectations um, along the way? And then you collect more people. So what I've really noticed is, I mean, all sorts of people you collect have all got a point of view. You know, I think one of the bits we've not spoken about, which is the marine infrastructure. So you have the people who build the boats, who need to take the equipment out to, out to the wind farms when they're building them. But you've also got the fishers. You've got lots and lots of different people. So you've got many, many different types of organizations and interests. Different skills and different interests. And so there are, there are inevitably some genuine, if you like, trade-offs. So it's inevitable that you are going to get different opinions, different trade-offs, and there are different ways of solving the problem, you know, and, and so we should expect different opinions. We, and we need to be clear about when we need to land on a decision and make the best of the decision that we make. I suppose it's not one of those things you can say, well, we all want the same end goal so everyone just has to go along with it because that's never going to work no <laughs> no I think I mean I think what's really interesting is it's I mean I'm working really really closely in my role that I'm responsible for delivering the offshore wind sector deal which is a collaborative framework between industry and government which was set about I think three or four years ago but actually although the the targets and the ambition for offshore wind in the UK may have increased from the 30 gigawatts we had at the time which was only three years ago to now 50 gigawatts, which is including five gigawatts of floating offshore wind. I mean, that's nearly doubled. And yet the framework around it, the, the, the planning, the grid, everything else has remained the same. So we're running to catch up with ourselves, which is why we're tr truly, truly collaborative. You know, I'm going to, today I'm going to a lunch in Parliament with a number of MPs and with National Grid Transmission. And that will be part of moving the discussion forward a little bit as to how we can work together to deliver this. There's no point, we can't, we can't be in a position where we're all shouting at each other. We need to find the way through it with maturity and sensitivity. And what's fascinating about that is the lessons that are actually being learned about how you do that, because these are changes that are going to come to every sector. These are changes with things that we're going to have to do on multiple levels. And that I suppose there's a lot to learn about even now about how to get policymakers and industry and investors to work in an aligned way. And even that's completely separate from 
the conversation we were having about trade-offs between the people on the ground and the different elements of industry in the sector. I think that, you know, Tim Pick was the offshore wind acceleration champion, and he was appointed by Boris Johnson just about a year ago to deliver a report, recognising that to accelerate um, offshore wind to the new targets, what needed to happen? And he came out with his report last year. Nick Wins has also been appointed as the grid champion to identify what are the different pieces that need to happen. And now what we're doing is working our way through them. But the problems are exactly as Duncan set out. They're still the same challenges. And that's fascinating because we talk about challenges all the time. And I suppose one of the challenges that we face is how we turn those challenges into opportunities and into lessons about how we move things forward. And I think that's a great place to take a break. We'll come back to discuss challenges in just a moment. Orsted is one of the world's largest renewable energy companies. With more than 30 years of experience, they are the global leader in offshore wind. With 6.2 gigawatts already installed across the UK, but they're just getting started and hope to invest a further £12 billion in Scotland alone in the next decade. They are taking tangible action to create a world which runs entirely on green energy leveraging their capabilities and insights to help countries and companies in their green transformations as they accelerate the fight against climate change together. Follow the journey at orsted.co.uk. And welcome back. Just before the break, we were having a chat about how to take challenges and turn them into lessons and opportunities. So I think perhaps it's a really good time to talk about what are those challenges that were identified as barriers to the deployment of offshore wind? Jane, you, you, you were talking about the report that came out last year. Can you talk us through some of those? Well, there's 60 plus recommendations. <laughs> okay, maybe not all of them then. <laughs> there was quite a lot. We have been chunking them up with, with the government. We're chunking them up and we're putting them into boxes or buckets as um, to actually identify how we're going to move them forward. Some are recommendations to government, some are recommendations to industry. And obviously the recommendations, but do you know broadly, I think it's as Duncan's saying, there's nothing earth shattering in there that we don't know already. It's really helpful to have them all written down. I think it's helpful to kind of sometimes to coalesce around a document, a piece of paper, a sort of report, but actually it's all exactly the same things. It's exactly, it's about the environment. It's about the grid. It's actually the supply chain. How do we kind of accelerate the supply chain? How do we make this good for the UK PLC? And how do we get those jobs as well? How do we get those jobs into the industry? And how do we train our young people or transition people from existing industries into our industry? So we're working through it. We are looking at how we kind of bring those pieces forward. There's a number of different parts of the puzzle. Yeah, no, there's no big surprise there. There's no, there's no, um, there are no big surprises. We know what we need to do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that comes from that that I'm interested in is that underlying framework because if you recognize what the challenges are, that's great. And identifying what you need to do about them is great. But how do you create a framework that enables that to happen? And I think one of the things that's interesting when it comes to Scotwind is who's in charge? Who sets the framework? Is it Westminster? Is it Holyrood? How does that actually work? And is, is the fact that you're dealing with different jurisdictions actually an issue? Or is it just something that happens and it gets managed i think it can be an issue and and actually it's not just westminster and holyrood I, I, unfortunately let's add on some other key interests with a slightly different perspective the crown estate and crown estate scotland for example 
the the planning authorities both in England and Wales but also in Scotland all dutifully discharging what they uh, what they see as the priorities Ofgem another one our industry regulator so it's even more than the two you name and I I think we've also got challenges that have emerged and got worse during the period of those two um, acceleration work streams that that Jane mentioned so you know, we've well and truly jumped out of an extraordinary decade of low interest rates into much much higher interest rates and at the same time we've jumped into an energy crisis let's hope we're coming out of it now in terms of the most acute phase but what we're left with is some very high industry inflation that global demand for offshoring that we spoke of is leading to a total turnaround in the in the supply chain the, the way supply and demand are balancing and that brings me back to that need for early signals of investment in the supply chain so the framework can get it wrong if the framework let's say the framework for the route in which these projects access revenues in the market so in the uk that's through the contract for difference which are auctioned these contracts long-term contracts uh, if effectively with society and these are auctioned out on a price basis but if those auctions happen so far down the road that the supply chain can't use those awards of contracts as the signal for investing in the supply chain itself, then we can't close that loop of investing in the supply chain to create the new capacity to deliver. That's an example where the framework can get it wrong. And, and I think we've got a very real risk right now that the projects that were fed into the system, the seabed was leased, the surveys were started, the environmental impact assessments were conducted, the consents were applied for, and now the consents are popping out of the system. And these are projects that have got grid connection agreements in reasonable timeframes during this decade before, before 2030. I think we're running a very real risk at the moment that those projects that are popping out and should be investment ready uh, maybe won't make that jump. And if they don't make that jump into execution, then when what we're not doing is feeding that supply chain. So I think there's a very real risk at the moment that the whole trajectory of, of growth in offshore wind, which is our trajectory of decarbonizing our electricity grid, that that falters. And I think that would be a very serious problem. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is that you're very clear about what will stop that happening. And that is auctions that are early enough that prices can be set and there can be certainty about investment and about return and about price. How do we go about getting that? Certainty is so important. If if developers and supply chains can feel certain about outcomes from planning, about access to grid, about access to revenues, which probably means through a contract for difference, a long-term contract. If they can be certain about all of those things, then that will support investment, whether you're talking supply chain or the infrastructure itself. So that's what we need. It also needs to be at a fair return for the risks that the investors are taking on board. And that's another issue where you know, what was maybe appropriate in the last decade when interest rates were very low, it probably isn't appropriate now. So we also need the frameworks to respond sufficiently fast to the changing external conditions here. Offshore wind is still extremely good value for society. It's still the best option we have, decarbonizing our electricity grid rapidly in big chunks. And it, it's still that best option, even if uh, uh, reflecting the costs that have gone up a bit with the increase in interest rates. And I think perhaps that's the interesting point here, which is that you say 
it, you know, it's a it's great value for society. So it's it's taking that wider view on what we mean by value and, and what we need to do. And and I suppose it's about time horizons. It's about thinking things through in terms of the time that we have available. As as you often do, Duncan, when I when I hear you speak, you always set another couple of things running for me. <laughs> and I think one of the bits that you mentioned about regulatory certainty. And having worked in the regulatory policy environment for probably 20 years of my career, previously in mobile telecoms and then in offshore wind, which are all things right at the forefront, we've always, you know, we always go in and say about regulatory certainty to government. But this time, this more than ever in all of my career, this time we really, really mean about regulatory certainty. It's really important when you've got people that are investing, you know, uh, we left Europe, we want people to come and invest in the UK. We want to be able to export our goods to elsewhere in the world. And that regulatory certainty is genuinely really, really important to business. It allows for long-term planning. It gives certainty. It gives confidence. It gives confidence when you speak to foreign investors. I think that we can help that. Hopefully, I'd like to feel that one of the areas that we can help in is the sort of trade associations delivering the offshore wind sector deal is we're working closely with government in a collaborative framework, as we've spoken about. But hopefully, we can act as an honest broker. Because we all have different, we've got different stakeholders. Duncan's stakeholders are different to my, well, we've got some of the same stakeholders, but my my members are my stakeholders. We need to represent their views. So there'll be things that some of my members will care passionately about that, frankly, Duncan, I'm sure you won't mind me saying it, probably aren't that interesting to you. Um, they're not going to be what your driver is. So I think that government does see us and can see if we're well-functioning as an honest broker. So if we can reflect those things and we hear the same messages time and time again from both the, the, the supply chain and from the developers, and it's about the CFD, it's about the sustainable price for CFDs. There has been a shift in this in the last couple of years. You know, I think that the price of some of the goods, the metals that need to go into it, the precious metals that need to go into this, they've changed, they've gone up. It does cost more. And I think we can act as an honest broker in that. So it's, and that will encourage the regulatory certainty and giving confidence in the prices going forwards. But I think that that wider value point is there as well. I mean, one of the things that it comes to mind for me is, is this issue on the differences between stakeholders and the differences between sectors, because actually, in a sense, you're competing offshore, you know, wind and oil and gas for the same steel and the same workers. What are the similarities and the differences that, that you're having to manage? I think cost inflation in supply chains is being seen across the board. And as Jane says, that's partly about commodity costs and it's partly about skill and labour costs and, and a pinch there, partly about logistics and uh, challenges that we've seen in the last few years. All of those things, I think, are across the different dimensions of energy, the different subsectors there. You know, I think there's also, you know, we're going through an extraordinary phase of investment at a pace we haven't seen for decades, if ever. We're trying to renew our whole energy infrastructure in just a few, a couple of decades. That That's an enormous acceleration of investment and that's going to need a massive growth in the talent we've got available. So there are, there is a dimension where we, we need to both do it smarter. Uh, we need to upskill, cross-skill, transfer in um, skills and people's energy from other sectors and and grow organically our capability to, to deliver. I mean, we have some advantages, particularly in offshore wind. We have the advantage that our raw technical unit is a factory-made module. That is one of the great strengths that you can control 
quality and pace and the environment and then you just assemble it out there in the field and that's one of the great strengths that gives us the ability to work at pace it, it, you know you can install an offshore wind farm much much faster than most equivalent power ratings of, of generation technology so that's very helpful uh, it helps us scale up and do more do more with less and it also helps us with that that issue of risk we talked about uncertainty and risk that plays through into cost because for any investor sources of uncertainty and risk are the things that might challenge your your uh, your your fair returns so so there's the other dimension when we do good work in driving out uncertainty and driving out risk we're also serving society by reducing the cost of its future energy so that's one of the things i you'd like i'd like to think we can all get behind and that's tr that's true whether you are working in grid development planning consent fisheries agreements radar solutions skills development any of those necessary parts of what we do i think you're right there duncan i think the skills part is really you know skills is a is a, is a people issue the passion that is in the industry for talking about our industry and bringing people into our industry and the development of stem and encouraging a more diverse and inclusive workforce you know particularly with the climate crisis that actually this is an industry that young people we hope will really want to enter but we're also talking about transitioning people i've been working really closely with the uh, with oe uk the oil and gas sector to actually kind of you know how how do we help transition people that are working on oil and gas rigs oil and gas workers offshore into the offshore wind sector because we need them so we need these people to come and enter our our world and make sure we're welcoming, make sure we're kind of like got the right, the right training, the right um, environment and bringing that forward. So we've been working really closely to try and advance that. It's, you know, we're working with a new sector. We've been quite, I think we've been, a, we've been quite, we've been a new sector. We've been quite insular as a sector, I think. We've done an awful lot of work in the last 10 to 15 years uh, as a sector, but we've just suddenly grown up. We're growing up. We're a young adult now, I would say. We're reaching our mid-20s. Um, and I think that it's, you know, we're, we're getting to meet new people. We're getting to meet other sectors. We are becoming more sector-like. We've just been, you know, to some extent, we've been building offshore wind farms. Now we're having to integrate into the rest of the world. And I think we're a little bit uncertain at times. And, you know, we're, we're learning how that goes. And I think there's, there's already a number of people in our, in our industry that have come from the oil and gas sector. Um, so there's already pathways through that. I think, Duncan, on your projects, I think some of yours, you've got people who have come in from some of the other oil and gas sectors. Um, so we're already seeing that happen. We, we, we definitely are. I, I, I agree with that sense of as the industry's become significant, it's grown up and it's working out how to fit in in a much bigger way into the energy system and into the economy. The one bit I was about to disagree with you before you said that was, was I think it's a proven path for people to come into offshore wind. There's, there's no way we employ so many today, 30, 40,000 plus already. They haven't just appeared. They've, they've generally transferred in. Many, many of my colleagues have transferred in and have had previous parts of their career in oil and gas sector, in the conventional power sector, in actually lots of other areas as well. And so I think there is a proven path but but we're now going to be growing to 100,000 plus just in the next five, six, seven years. So we've got a lot more growing to do in terms of people. And so we, we do need to make it smoother. 
we need to show those pathways and, and encourage people to to um, come and be part of something which is genuinely a lot of fun and wonderfully satisfying industry to be in. Well, I have to say you make that sound rather exciting. I think it's that use of that word pathways because it's about building trust. It's about collaboration. It's about, you know, there is competition, but you can find ways of working together. So I, there's sort of words that from our conversation that are really sticking out and it's about trade-offs and it's about certainty and it's about collaboration. And it's it's how we actually transfer that knowledge because what you're talking about is is a decade's worth of experience and knowledge and learning on how to make things work. How to make things work. So many different disciplines involved. We were celebrating um, last week Transaction Marathon on one of our projects and we realised that it was 11 and a half years earlier than that that a team of people had been walking the land route of one of our export cables. You know, assessing the route for its suitability, assessing the land holdings, in the intervening period, an enormous amount of work was done by just an incredible range of different professionals working for lots of different organizations. It went through that whole cycle of signing up landowners, surveying, planning consent, construction of two different wind farms through that cable route, um, their commissioning and their their smooth operations producing electricity. And and here we were 11 years later with a with another transaction taking place on those assets. And some of the people who would have been involved in that very first walking the land route are still involved in the company. And of course, it's an incredibly satisfying thing to see all of those different disciplines and tasks come together and end in something which is physical, is real. You can see it. You can you know that society is is benefiting from it. And that's the game we're in today. The stuff that we're doing today will be benefiting society in the mid-2030s. And that's that's such an, an important draw for many, many people. They want to have a professional employment which has a sense of purpose in it, where they where they can believe in that purpose. And actually, people can sign up to these, these long-term parts. I would also say that there's many people who played a part in that particular example who are today either retired or they're working for different companies or they're doing something totally different but they still have their little stake in it their personal contribution of energy and skill which help make it happen so it is it is genuinely something broad pride involved in doing these things that was exactly what i was just going to say duncan is it's not just the people that are still there it's the people that have gone into other areas last week there was a really you know Hornsey 4, the Ersted project, finally got its development consent order through the planning. And there was genuine joy across the industry about that's kind of got through because it makes it clearer for other people where the pathway is. But also many, many of those people are now working in different organizations, myself included. And that's what's lovely is that that sort of, that's the collaborative approach and that sort of strategic approach is there is joy about those projects happening and people do for the sense of purpose and ownership. It hasn't got to, oh, well, they got it, but I didn't. That There just isn't that. There is joy about it. And isn't, isn't that great? I think that's fantastic. It's wonderful to have, to have lessons learned that actually lead to joy as well as, you know, 
much needed infrastructure. And I think that's a really wonderful note to leave our conversation on for this final episode of season two of Giga Waters. Thank you, Duncan and Jane, for joining me today. It was a great chat and really lovely to hear what you were thinking. Um, To our listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts about what's been discussed today, you can find us on social media or drop us an email at outloud at energyvoice.com. Don't forget to tune in to Energy Voice's weekly podcast episode where the Energy Voice team discuss the latest goings on in the energy sector, ranging from oil and gas to renewables. If you've yet to do so, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on your podcast app of choice and listen out for more episodes coming soon. I'm Felicia Jackson. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.